Well, all right. Well, hey, come on back. Come on back and uh, grab a seat. And uh, we're going to open up to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 as we continue on Sunday mornings right through the New Testament. And we do sort of jump around a little bit, but you know, once we get to the end of the New Testament on Sundays, we start over again. And then on Wednesdays, we're uh, trying to make our way <laughs> through the Old Testament. We're going to finish the book of Jeremiah this Wednesday. Wow, 52 chapters, folks. I don't, we got to, I got to check this out, but I would have dominated most of the year, I would think, of. 2021. So that's what we're finishing there. And then next we'll take on Lamentations. When was the last time you studied Lamentations at church? So we're going to do that uh, in a couple weeks. So you're welcome to come here on Wednesdays at 7 uh, for that. Okay. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I think. Did I say 3 earlier? If I did, I meant to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Well, here's what we're in. We're, we're in a, a, another letter by Paul to the Corinthian church, to a church that's in southern Greece. Macedonia is sort of northern Greece. Corinth is down lower around two body masses, and it's, it's I can never say the word, so bear with me. It's an ichthus. Oh, I said it okay. What is it? Ithmus. There you go. There you go. See, I told you I can't say it. I admitted it. And it's that little, it's a four-mile little land sliver that separates two great bodies of water. And what, it was a terrifying trip around the horn down below there. So the people of Corinth came up with these, this ingenious thing to roll the ships across land. So that the people wouldn't have to do that. And thus it became a seafaring sort of port town and a lot of things came with it. And in Acts 18, we find that Paul goes there and for 18 months pours out his heart. I mean, blood, sweat, tears, love, just pouring it all out for a church, man. Him and his uh, ministry uh, folks. And this church raises up against the backdrop of really some dark and, um, you know, evil things that are happening in the city, including, you know, temple prostitution as they worship their uh, temple gods that uh, overhung the city or uh, was on a hill above the city. And the prostitutes at night would come down and ply their trade, and that would be a form of their worship. And they thought that was uh, participation in worship. And in the first book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Paul is hearing about some things after he's left Corinth, the church, and he's writing back to the church, and it's a corrective, listen to this word, I'm picking it on purpose, a letter of rebuke. 
I mean, he's writing this letter back to the church that he poured out, and he's saying, you got some real things that are, I mean, just or some things here that are really wrong. I mean, you're showing up at the things that we started, the love feasts, and you're selfish, and there's cliques. There's the rich and the poor, and the rich are coming in and eating and drinking and getting drunk, and man, that's so inappropriate. And you're suing one another. What are you saying to the world when you sue one another and you bring your matters before the courts? And they were dividing over the pastors, some loved Apollos, and some this, and some that, and some just said, we just follow Jesus. Remember all that? And Paul wrote about this. In the midst of that, and this is something you need to know for today's uh, teaching, there was a man who was having a sexual ongoing relationship with his stepmom. And that was shocking. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That was shocking, but was more, what was more shocking to Paul was that the church just acted as if nothing was going on. And when we went over 1 Corinthians 5, we talked about Achan, A-C-H-A-N, and his sin and his, the sin of his family as they people of God were moving out from Egypt and going through the wilderness and then about to enter the promised land. I mean, they were on a mission to enter the promised land, and yet Achan had uh, taken some things that were worldly and all of that sort of thing, and he buried it under his tent. And uh, he and his family and those that participated in the Old Testament came to a terrible end. And the story tells us, doesn't it, that God doesn't want any sin in the camp. And so, and why? I mean, think about it. It paralyzed the people of God. It took days for them to stop their mission to go into the promised land so they could deal with this sin. And they had to trot out all the different families and see and narrow it down to people. And it, it paralyzed the mission which was to live in the promises of God and to be pure and holy and set apart, right? And so Paul in Corinthians, in both books, and we're going to see here today, he sets forth some things about church discipline because when we talked in James 3 about the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world, do you remember this in Ecclesiastes? My friend over here does. He always... He came up to me after the sermon and said, wow, I never thought about it that way. But the wisdom of the world is sensual. The wisdom of God is peaceable and pure. And when people are walking in the Lord, you know, with the Lord, it's not that we're perfect little robotic saints. We still commit sin, but we have a provision for sin. And when we do, we confess our sin and God who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and then we keep walking toward the Lord. But here's what happens. When you get sin in the camp, Paul prescribes what to do. He sets it forth in different places in his writings. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 5, when this immorality was there. He says, watch this. In verse 4 of chapter 5, 1 Corinthians, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, watch this, 
if the man who is in sin won't repent, watch this, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That he, why? Why? So we can prove that we are right and he is wrong, that we're more spiritual than he has nothing to do with it. It goes on and says that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And you're all sitting here looking at me like, man, I think, gosh, I don't know. I mean, does this have anything to do with the day? Well, unfortunately, it sort of doesn't. Now, you're shocked that I said that. It does have everything to do with the day, but nobody, including churches, wants to deal with this. We just want to stick our heads right in the sand. When there's sin in the camp, just pat you on the head and say, don't tell me about it because I don't want to know. But that's not the biblical model. In fact, Jesus himself gave us some, uh, uh, you know, uh, information or advice on how to deal with sin in the camp. And you all know it, and you've quoted it, and you probably could uh, say it from memory. But in Matthew 18, let's look at this. Jesus has a, uh, a place in Matthew 18, 15 through 20 here that deals with a person who's sinning. Now, we're not talking about the person who sinned like you did this week or I did this week and had to confess your sin and move on toward the Lord. This is a person who has sinned and doesn't really want to do anything about it. Get the difference? Moreover, Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Hey, don't make it a big deal, Jesus says. Don't gossip to your boyfriends or girlfriends. Don't, don't gossip about the person. Just keep it private. Somebody sinned against you. Don't put it out on Facebook, people. Come on. Christians. And then go right to the person. Don't text them. Don't call them. Don't send them a letter. Go right to the person. And say, hey, listen, this is something that's going on. It seems as if you did this. What do you think? Go right to them. By the way, folks, and I say this and I'm joking around, but I'm not really joking around. Love covers a multitude of sins. If somebody parked in your parking spot out there, it's not a reason to schedule a meeting with somebody because they sinned against you. They just parked in your parking spot, folks. We're talking about a sin here, something that they've done against you. And here he just says, now go tell him between you and him. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. Now, a little bit of a timeout. I know we're jumping around because Paul, now I'm jumping back to Paul. I'm going to come back to Matthew 18. Paul in Galatians 6 gives us more info about this. See, it must have been something that was very uh, prevalent for Paul. In Galatians 6, he gives us some real insight about how to deal with a sinning brother. <clears throat> and it's this in verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, if somebody's gone over the line, that's what trespass is. They've gone over the line. They've broken God's law. They've, 
committed a sin. If a man is overtaken in any trespass, them make sure you go out and blast them on social media. No, it doesn't say that. It says, you who are spiritual, watch this, restore such a one in a spirit of what? I'm right, you're wrong. No, gentleness, considering yourself, because you could also be tempted by this. What else does Jesus say? Now, now I'm going to flip it back to Jesus. Jesus, in another part of the scriptures, or the gospels, says this. Now, before you go and take big planks out of other people's eyes, folks, you better get the sod, or excuse me, before you go and take the sawdust out of other people's eyes, folks, you better remove the massive plank that's in yours. So before you go and talk to a sinning brother or sister, you better do some soul-searching yourself so that you don't go in a haughty spirit, right? We've just taken a compilation of the different, uh, uh, you know, pulled it all together from the different teachings here. And if you go, what happens? According to Matthew 18, if, if, if you, you've gained your brother, great, just forget about it. It's over. You've cleared the air. You've asked for forgiveness or they've asked for forgiveness. You're back together, no problem. But what happens if he won't hear you? Verse 16 of Matthew 18, well, then take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. It's a good thing to take a witness, right, so that you know that you've done the right thing, and everybody knows that you've done the right thing. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church, folks. <laughs> if it, it's just as, as God is, if, if there's repentance, welcome, come back. We love you. We're not going to hold it against you. We love you. We're so thankful that you're here, and we got to watch ourselves because we could find ourselves in the same spot you're in. But if you refuse to repent and hear, tell it to the church. Now, how public is that? And the whole reason... As we read in 1 Corinthians 5, is to deliver such a one as over to Satan. Satan is, in a sense, and is the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world currently, not forever. So it's like you put him out into the world. There's this disassociation of fellowship. There's a... Bl- Time out here for a minute. I'm going to take a little rabbit trail. I want you to know something about the church. It's not the Kiwanis Club, folks. It's not a social club. There's something different about a church, a body of believers in Jesus Christ. And the real difference, the real unity is, is that the believers have Jesus pulsing, his life in you. But Jesus and Paul by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has said, when you're in a fellowship, there's something different. You don't go by the Kiwanis Club's rules, vote him in and he, or her in, and she's president. And, you know, if people are gossiping, well, we'll just hate each other and go forward and vote them out and vote them. That's not the, that's not the church. The church says, work it out. <laughs> And if you can't, if there's an unrepentant brother or sister, there may be a time where you have to put them out of fellowship. Because in here is life, 
and an encouraging and a sharpening and a building up and an exhorting. But if you won't listen, you must be put out. I'm not saying it. He's saying it. And assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, it says here, will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered, I am there in the midst. I laugh about this because, watch, here's a great uh, scripture about the power of prayer, and it's in the realm of confrontation with people. That's where it is. Now, why did I just bring you through all of that? (laughs) Because Paul rebukes the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. He rebukes them. I mean, church discipline is difficult. It's hurtful. It's awkward. And you say, hurtful? Wait a minute, hurtful? That's not the role of the church. Well, i got to tell you, folks, if, if, if your son or daughter is five years old and they keep putting the fork in the light socket, they just won't stop. Well, first of all, you got the fancy things you can put in there. But, or, or maybe they want to ride their bike in 837 out here. They just won't stop. They just, they just keep doing it. And you say, well, you got to stop it because you're going to get hurt. And, and they just won't. And, you know... You take them over to the light socket and you just pat them on the arm or the, the hand, right? What are you, what are you saying? You've got to stay away from that. There's consequences here. And they associate that little injury with not doing that so that they don't get hurt further. So you patted them to keep them from harm. Okay, that's what church discipline is. And the reason I'm telling you this is you're going to see today now, I wanted you to see the stark realities of church discipline because I want you to see the flip side of the coin now today, the love when somebody comes back. Paul's going to show you that. So when you go back to 2 Corinthians 2, know this. As I've told you, Paul poured out his heart in Acts 18 in Corinth. But you need to know this. Paul wrote at least, and probably more than this, he wrote at least four letters to the Corinthians. We know two of them are lost. But 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians are inspired, and here we find them. Paul refers to them here. Uh, in, in, in the book of First uh, and Second Corinthians. And I also want you to know that Paul visited, and you'll see it here right off the bat as we start to read Second Corinthians 2, and there's not really much known about or visited other than uh, the times that we know about in Acts and other places. Uh, he, he says so right here in Chapter 2, verse, two, uh, uh, verse 2, but I determined this within myself, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 1, that I wouldn't come again to you in sorrow. There's a probably, there's most likely, most scholars believe that there is a time that he was actually able to visit, and it was a very sorrowful visit. Now, why do you think it was a sorrowful visit? Because he was still, still dealing with the church discipline, Right? 
Well, here he is. I determined this within myself that I wouldn't come again to you in sorrow. In other words, listen, look at Paul being really real here. <laughs> I've written this rebuking letter. I came and visited, and it was sort of a sorrowful visit. And here he writes, I don't really want to come again until the sorrow is over. He was a real guy. He didn't enjoy calling people out and confronting them over their sin. It's hard to do. It's difficult. But he knew he had to do it. So he determined this within myself that I wouldn't come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? Now you're saying, what is that all about? This is very interesting. Let's just say, we don't know for sure that he's talking about the guy in 1 Corinthians 5, but he probably is. Get what I'm saying? The man who is living with his stepmom. But he probably is. We don't know for sure, but probably. And what he's saying here is, if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? You're saying that's a weird way of saying it. Yeah, it kind of is. What he's trying to say here is, I've now tried. I've written my letter, the rebuking letter. I've visited. Watch this. And now I'm going to trust the Lord to do his work. See, that's fascinating for me. Because here's the kind of guy I am. Lord, I know the scriptures. I'm going to pray to you. Now I'm going to go upstairs and worry about it. And here, Paul said, well, I'm going to make you sorrowful. Then he is who makes me glad. When I come to you next, in other words, I'm anticipating that the Lord's going to do his work. And when I get there, I'm going to be really glad. Why? Because the man would have repented and come back to the Lord. And Paul knew that that was the point in which, yes, praise the Lord. We can love on this man and make sure he's okay now that he's humbled himself and repented. Watch this. And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I have sh uh, should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy. See this? He's really, really just real here, authentic, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Now, I want you to see something about church discipline. We don't know much about it, I'm convinced, because not many people do it or not many churches do it or engage in it. But the first thing you should know about church discipline, as we've sort of given you a very quick survey here in the first 10, 15 minutes, is this. Paul knew, as it burned a hole in his chest, that he had to do it. Get the sin out of the camp. It burned a hole in his chest. Here Paul is. He's not lording it over people and saying, I'm right and you're wrong and you better do what I say, or you're out of here. That's not the uh, approach Paul has here. Do you notice this? He's saying, guys, I had to write these things and approach these people. It was affliction to me. I was sick over it. There was anguish of heart when I wrote to you, and I cried over these things. 
I didn't really want you to be grieved, but that you know that the love which I have so abundantly for you, I wanted you to know that this was completely out of love. You say, well, wow, that's a weird love. Well, turn with me over to the book of Titus. I hear many in the church say, man, I need some grace. Why don't you give me some grace? Well, I think it's because you don't understand grace. Grace is not some wimpy, crutchy thing that just lets you off the hook. No, grace is a training grace, a, 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 a encouraging grace, a building up grace. Let's see if I can get there. <laughs> Here it is. Verse 11, Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteousness, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't know if you caught this, but the grace of God is not just for salvation. It's an enabling grace that allows us to live the Christian life. And in one area, you see, the grace of God that has brought salvation, it teaches us. God gives us the resources to be taught. I mean, he teaches us by his resources, by his grace resources. And one of the things he teaches us is to die ungodliness and worldly lusts. And sometimes, folks, that hurts. And when you go back here, you see it playing out in a man. I mean, the tension here. This one who wants to welcome the one back. He's just on the edge of his seat, please come back and repent. That's the whole goal of this whole process as Paul's writing these letters and making these appearances and having to talk to the person that's in sin, please come back. And the, you know, if you ever approach somebody and you really had a great motive and, and, and you get this all the time, this comes out all the time, what kind of Christian are you? Where's my grace? Are you even a Christian? What do you people practice in that church? That's weird. Oh, you mean church discipline's weird? <laughs> That's what you get from the people. And all the while, the people who are laying that on you have no idea that you really care for them and love them and just want what's best for them. And that's what Paul was fighting right here. His heart is that he would, could welcome them back, but they had to have repented this man. So he's grieved and he's loved, he, he loves them and there's tears and there's anguish. And then he goes on in verse 5 and he says, but if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent. So not only is Paul grieved, but the whole church is grieved over these things. Not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, now that you know the survey of church discipline, how could it be the majority? Because apparently they had a meeting, they discussed what was going on after Paul's letter, the Lord was at work, and the fellowship said, we, we do, we have to put him out, deliver one unto Satan. And so Paul says, Man, I've heard, he doesn't say it here, but it must have happened. I hear word that the man repented. So, you, on the contrary, 
you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Isn't that interesting? Here comes Paul. He's been dealing with this situation. It's caused him anguish and tears and anxiety and ulcers and Pepto-Bismol and the whole shooting match. And now the man's repented and the church, look at this, is unwilling now or at least dragging its heels about letting the person come back into the fellowship and loving on them. Do you get that? And so there's this weird thing that can happen in the church. There can be that sin by the church, starting with the leadership of just allowing the stuff to go on. Don't tell me about it. I might have to deal with it. That's a sin. But then there's this thing when the person repents about just still laying it on them, just hammering and them, hammering till the point where they're just so sorrowful, they can't hardly take it. No, we're to forgive and to comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, watch what Paul says to them, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. <laughs> tell, tell the person you love them. Make sure they know that you love them. When you have to deliver hard news, by the way, the proverb says, you know, <laughs> the proverbs say that you, you have, you're, you're going to uh, uh, find faithful friends who will wound you with their mouth. You, you read that, you know, you're doing your one-year Bible study, your two-year Bible plan, you get to Proverbs 27, and you go, what? I don't want a friend like that. I want him to tell me everything's great, and I'm fantastic. Well, Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And so there's a time, yes, to tell the truth, speak the love, or speak truth in love. There's that time to speak that truth out. But then there's a, a time where you're to welcome them back and reiterate and tell them and confirm for them that you're loved here and we do love you. And the whole time that we had to put you out, our only hope and goal was that you would be restored and that we could come back and love one another and be back together again. Therefore, I urge you, I'm going to read it again, to reaffirm your love to him, verse 8. For to this end I also wrote, that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. You see, because I don't know what it is about us Christians. It's sort of fun in a fleshly way when we know we have something on somebody. Admit it. There's this temptation to just sort of keep our thumb over somebody because we know we have the upper hand because we know that sin that they did and it was terrible and awful and they stayed unrepentant for a while and, and it's fun to feel like I'm more spiritual than that person, we think to ourselves. Here Paul says, that's nonsense. Get rid of all of that. In fact, this is sort of a test about whether or not you are living in obedience to Christ. Now, look at this in verse 10. Whom you forgive anything, I also forgive, Paul says. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. And that's the verse in which they think this must be the man from 1 Corinthians 5. If I 
I have forgiven anything. I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. I want you to see something. This welcoming back of the person into the fold, watch this, was not only for the sake of the person who committed the sin and was repentant. We saw that right at the beginning of these verses. But now we have seen, secondly, it's good and healthy for the church, the body of Christ itself, and you must recognize all of us, both the ones who are receiving a person back and the one who is coming back, that you committed that sin before Christ. It wasn't just you got slighted, they did this to you. This was a sin before Christ. And if you read Psalm 51, after David had fallen and Bathsheba and the murder and all that sort of thing, David says what? Against you only have I sinned, Lord. I know I sinned against you. So there is, see, this healthy thing when the body of Christ deals with things in this way. Things don't fester. Things don't grow out of control. People don't get their feelings hurt and go home and take their ball and go home. No, we come together as a family, as a body of Christ, and we do what the Lord has asked us to do. You're saying, wow, what a pick-me-up here at the beginning of the new year. But see, it sort of is, because watch this. If you have problems in this area, maybe you haven't, maybe the, you know, the church here hasn't found out what it is that you're unrepentant of, or maybe, you know, you're keeping it quiet or, or whatever, but there's something that the Lord is asking you to do. Maybe it's forgive somebody. Hey, novel. I want you to see the last line of this. Do these things, the way in which the Bible prescribes, watch this, verse 11, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Wow. You see, here's the foothold that the enemy of our souls is looking for, the exact foothold, that little place that he can just grab onto to get you. And that's this, to be a person who refuses to repent of their sin. And if you do it, watch, you're in the realm now of a spiritual battle. You always are, but here it's really apparent. There's a little foothold now that the enemy can get a hold of. And what is a, the little foothold that he's going to get a hold of? It's just that little flicker, maybe, of bitterness or anger. Wait a minute. I'm not going to ask for forgiveness from that person. I know I wasn't real good to that person, but that person deserved it. Bitterness, anger, and see, the enemy just grabs right a hold of it and leads you down a path of certain destruction and death. So don't let it happen. Here's where he says it. He says, Let's, Satan is going to take advantage of these situations uh, 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 and he's going to take advantage of us. So he says, don't be ignorant of his devices. I told you this a couple weeks ago. Maybe it was in 1 Corinthians 5, which was probably a long time ago. But what are the things that Paul says don't be ignorant of? You can look them up. Don't be ignorant of the end times and the rapture. That's in 1 Thessalonians 4. What do people never want to talk about in the church? 
the end times and the rapture, oh my gosh, people might not come because we have a stance on the rapture. Paul says, don't be ignorant of that. Paul here says, don't be uh, ignorant of spiritual warfare. Well, what do a lot of people say? Well, we're too intellectual for spiritual warfare. Come on, I'll go to church and listen to the Gospels a little bit, and I'll be a good person. But spiritual warfare, come on. People say this now, folks. What else does he say don't be ignorant of? Here's another one in in the Scriptures. Don't be ignorant of Israel and God's plan for future Israel. And yet you have a growing movement of people who believe... Israel has been replaced by the church, and now there's no future program for Israel. And God says, don't be ignorant. Isn't it interesting that those three very controversial subjects, Paul says, don't be ignorant of? Huh. I think there's a fourth one, but I've gone blank, so you tell me after the... What is it? Oh, yes. Oh, man. Praise the Lord that you told me. Yeah, he also says don't be ignorant of spiritual gifts. What what happens to people when you start talking about spiritual gifts? The Pentecostals get up and jump around. The Baptists want to go home. Right? It's like controversial. Don't talk about it, talk about it. Well, what happens if you have a balanced view on it? Spiritual gifts. Okay, so he says that. Now you're saying, well, man, I came for a pick-me-up and all that sort of thing. And this isn't really a pick-me-up. But see, it is a pick-me-up because when you deal with hurts and struggles and sin and relationship in the way that the Lord says, health comes, holiness comes. It involves pure, peaceable wisdom, not the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world says, I ain't going to deal with it. I know I need to repent, but I'm just going to hide it away. I'm not going to do what the Lord says, but nobody will know. So what's the big deal? See, that's the wisdom of the world. Here, he says, if you deal with it this way, there's going to be this clearing. And we read about it today. There's, you talk about freedom. When there's repentance and forgiveness, it's just freedom here. And then watch this. Paul, now, he takes about a four-chapter timeout. Remember, 2 Corinthians is a uh, timeout. He takes a detour. 2 Corinthians, remember, is Paul's personal book. More, You get to, a glimpse into his personal life and how he relates to the Lord and with the Lord and with people. Remember, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Well, here you see how Paul in his daily life imitates Christ. And you see it almost all the way through chapter 7, about midway through chapter 7. Here, it's just an explosion of praise. And he says, man, all of this stuff is happening, and I'm so overwhelmed, and I want to teach you and mold you and show you how to live a godly life when a repentant brother or sister comes back. And then he says, and furthermore, like just it comes out of him. He can't help it. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, now, here Paul is, and he's trying to find a friend. He loves a man named Titus, and he's trying to find a friend, and anyway, uh, so he's searching in different cities for him, and Remember, I told you this last week, he had promised that he would get back to Corinth 
And he hadn't come back to Corinth in the time in which he said, the reason was the Lord had kind of spoken to him to go to different places. And the people in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians, he, he, he refers to it, are mad at him because, my goodness, Paul, you're not a man of your word. You told us you would come, and where are you? Anybody ever been misunderstood? And here he says, well, I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord. I had no rest in my spirit because I didn't find Titus my brother, but taking my leave of him, I departed for Macedonia. He really wants to find him. I want you to see something. There's got to be flexibility in ministry, folks. I know there's people who love to plan. I'm just not one of them. (laughs) Do I need to plan more? Of course. But you got people that are writing down five-year plans. I I know I'm going to get criticism for this. How can a church have a five-year plan when you're being uh, 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 led by the Holy Spirit? I just don't get it. I don't understand how that can happen. Should we be planners? Yes. Should we have a vision? Yes. Of course. Come. I'll tell you what the vision of this church. Win people to Christ, build people up in Christ, and send them out in Christ. That's it. There it is. I don't need, we don't need, the leaders don't need to spend 15000 for church marketing studies to tell us what to do to get more people in here. Just go read Acts 2. It tells you. We don't even care about more people. I mean, that sounds terrible. <laughs> we care about all the people, but whatever, wherever the Lord puts us, let's us here grow deep, rooted and grounded with equipping so that we can go out and change the world. Just this little group right here, let's do it. You don't need all that stuff. How can you be led by the Holy Spirit if you're going to follow a five-year plan that you don't know what's going to happen? Paul certainly didn't. Could you have vision and a sketch of five years? Sure, of course. So here he says, well, I thought I should have gone one place, but the Lord took me a different place. And oh, by the way, it's kept me from going to Corinth, and I got people that are yelling at me, but I'm just going to be obedient to the Lord and do it. I'm going to be flexible. I'm going to let the Lord lead. Do I need to be better at planning and leading and following? Yes, and we all do. But come on, folks, you planners who write everything out for 75 years, what what is the Lord going to do in your life? Maybe he's going to take you at step number three and put you off into a different direction. And yes, maybe we need better organization here in the leadership, but we do have good people with good organization. It's just not me. But here he says, now thanks be to God. See, here's the punchline. Here it comes. You're like, wow, these are some weird topics. They're all kind of strung together here. These are some weird topics. And then he just says, well, here in an explosion of praise, now thanks be to God, here it comes, who always leads us. That's the first thing. My friend right here, his favorite uh, verse is Romans 8, 28. Uh, You know uh, that if you want to look with me. uh, Romans 8, 28, it's ruled his whole life. Um, I'll read it to you so I don't mess it up. I know there's a weird translation. Never mind. Anyway, you all know it uh, by heart. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are uh, called according to his purposes. Now, you do really believe that. Okay, if you really believe that, then why do we murmur so much? 
Why do we complain so much? Why are we at odds with people so much? God's working out every situation that you're in currently for your good and his glory. Every single situation. I don't care what it is. There, are there tough times and are there suffering comings? Of course, but he's working it out for your good and your glory. And if you believe that, listen, you also need to know, that Paul, as Paul knew, that you're being led. It says, now thanks be to God, by the way, thank God for being led in the circumstances, who always leads you. And that's great, and it is. It's tremendous. It's fabulous. But then he adds on to it. I don't know if you guys know this, but I hate to lose. I don't like to lose. Is anybody with me on this? I got problems, okay? I don't like to lose. Look at this. Who always leads you in triumph. See, that gets my attention. Ooh, wait a minute. So you mean the circumstance I'm in that seems crappy and in the toilet? Do you, what? See, he's leading you now in triumph in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're being led in triumph. That's who you are. You really are a trophy of grace. And through us diffuses the fragrance of its knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, as so many, peddling, oh my goodness, the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God. We speak in the sight of God in Christ. Now, I want you to just hold in for just a few more minutes. See, Paul is a real man that lives in a real world with real experiences, and the world at the time is dominated by Rome. And when Rome would have a great victory back in Rome, they would have a great parade. Or in the provinces, they would have a great parade of where they dominated. In fact, some of the extra-biblical writings say, and I don't know how this translate to us, but if they killed or captive or took captive over 5,000 people, you were eligible for this parade as a general. And the parade was this. Uh, you would have uh, some people out front who were Romans. Uh, you would have some music players. You would, have, uh, you would even have the Roman priests. And the Roman priests would swing their censers with incense burning. And then, of course, you know, you'd have a couple other people, but you'd have the actual captives, the people in prison or chains, who would walk the streets. And then behind it, you'd have some more people from the royal party, but of course, the general, right, would be in his chariot, and people would be hailing him, and some people say behind him would be his sons, and they would march through the streets, and it would be a big celebration of a big victory, and then, you know, if it was in Rome, of course, they'd get to the Colosseum. Guess what would happen to the captives? Yeah, you're lion food. We're going to have the celebration continue with the games. And the games are, you're going to try and beat the lions. Well, see, that's the image Paul's making here for the people in Corinth who live in a Roman province, who understand the realities of Roman parades or general 
you know, traipsing the people through the streets. So think about it. Watch this. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph. By the way, who would we be in the parade? Well, there's a couple uh, uh, schools of thought as commentators think about it. Well, we could actually be the ones who are being captive. Now, of course, Christ doesn't kill us, but maybe we were the ones who being captive. We've been taken captive for Christ, but also... On the other hand, maybe we're the sons and daughters who follow behind the chariot. Our Lord, see, came to earth to conquer sin and death. Colossians says, and by the way, remember, I hate to lose. I love this verse. It might be my favorite verse or close. He made a, at the cross, I just think of a big uppercut. He made a public spectacle of them, the powers of darkness at the cross. They thought he had them, or they thought they had him. He makes a public spectacle. He defeats them, and he puts them on display. He's in triumph. We're being led in triumph in Christ. And watch this. Somehow, some way, I can't believe this really. I'll just be honest. I'm not sure I fully understand it, but he gives us the privilege, the honor to participate in matters of spiritual life and spiritual death. (laughs) Because you walk through life as as one who is following, being led by the great captain of our salvation, Jesus Christ. And people are looking to him, but remember, they associate this thing, this whole parade, with the smell that they smell. And for those who are behind the chariot, the smell represents amazing smell. But for those people who have no idea what the parade is about, or even in front of the chariot, that's the smell that death's coming. So your life, it's amazing. Your life is not just your life to, you know, make your money, get your 401k socked away, put up your white picket fence and have all the, all those and fly away and do all the things that you do in retirement and just build your kingdom. No, you actually participate in God's agenda, which is to bring people into the family of God. And what they're doing is they're watching you. And your life matters in God's economy for all that he's doing. And for some, they're going to come and say, why are you so different? I like the smell that you're diffusing. (laughs) For some, they're just going to run and go the other way. You see why it's so dangerous to be a people pleaser? Because the Bible says that some people are just going to hate you for it. It's like death to them. Some people are going to find all of life forever with him through your life. They're going to come to you. They're going to say, what's different? Why? And you're going to be able to deliver to them the gospel. And the Holy Spirit's going to come and impact their heart by the word of God. And you're going to see them in heaven. Wow. What a time that's going to be. To some, 
to her being saved, it's that beautiful fragrance of lovely Christ. But to those who are dying, it's just this smelly, awful, despicable aroma unto death. <laughs> and then he says something. You know, you, you'd think of life that way. I, wouldn't you write this? <laughs> I would. Wouldn't you write this? This is really funny. Because even as I've been talking about it, this is how I feel, and I bet you feel this. Who is sufficient for that? Oh, my gosh. Can I even do this, Lord? Am I up for that? Well, I just became a Christian six months ago or whatever. Who is sufficient for these things? By the way, he answers it right in chapter 3. He answers it. He says... Verse 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. The only way you live this life, if you think this is some Susie Orman paradigm, Tony Robbins generating, life generating, that's not this. That has nothing to do with Christianity. You get your resource and life and strength to live this out and to march out into a world where... 50% or more hate you, live with joy and clarity and purpose and vision and strength and forgiveness and f the fruit of the Spirit and people start to come and you're sharing the gospel and that's the life you live. And it's all from God. And then he adds one more thing as we close. For we are not, as so many, peddling, peddling, isn't that a sad word? The word of God. But as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God and Christ. And it's a sobering reality. It's a sobering reality for leaders of churches. If you're peddling the word of God, and by the way, it's a really interesting word that sort of means like watering down, making it less impactful. That's what that word means, and, and obviously then it also means in doing it for gain and profit. If you're doing it for that, oh man, you're in deep trouble. <laughs> and I, I don't know about you, but I turn on Christian TV and I go, hmm, peddling, 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 peddling. And it just goes on and on and on. If you give us money, you're going to have lots of great things. And really, it's a get-rich scheme for the pastor and his staff. And here, Paul says, let's never do that. Let's never water down. It hurts sometimes. Sometimes it hurts. It's got like surgery. I'm, we're going to have to tell you things in the word, in the services, and maybe even come to you sometimes and say, you know, you really ought to think about this thing. That's not appropriate, and that's hard, but we're not going to wet water down the word. And then he says, as you walk through life, and 50% or more of the people hate you and don't like the smell of you spiritually, you don't water it down. You say, oh my, am I up for this? And God says, Probably not. That's why you're going to rely on me. Well, as we close, I don't know if the worship team's coming back, but I should check with them, huh? But uh, see, I don't plan. 
What's that? Come on up. Uh, as we do that, I just want, to, want you to know something. If you've never submitted to Jesus, laid your life down, and asked him to come and save you, well, that's something that you should do today, even as we're singing this last song in worship. If there's something in your life in which you need to repent of, and maybe go to a brother or sister and ask for forgiveness or get it right with a brother or sister. During this song, I just want you to pray and think about it and ask the Lord to give you the strength to go and do that. To be a person who wouldn't water down the word. To be a person who wouldn't water down the word. See, we can't pick and choose. The Bible's not a buffet. It's not a buffet. It's all. Or we have nothing. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you so much uh, for today, and thank you for your word, and uh, thank you, Lord, that you lead your children. You lead them in victory. Lord, I thank you. We thank you together that we don't fight for victory, but that we... Fight from victory. What a big difference. And I ask, Lord, that you'd knit these things to our hearts and make them a reality so that we could go out just now as we move out of this place and share your gospel with many who are dying and hurting and lonely and are confused in a time where there's much confusion. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.